Tyre's blood shall run. There can be no power greater anywhere beneath the sun. Yet what force on earth is weaker than the feeble strength of one? But the union makes us strong. Alright, welcome back. It's Desolation Radio. Um, it's part two of our special episode on lesbians and gays support the minors. We're here with Mike Jackson and Gethin Roberts. We've come back up to London yeah. to do part two. Um, Thanks so much for inviting us back again. Yeah. You're um, so we're going to start this part two and talking about Thatcherism, which is a nice, lovely thing to talk about um, because it it's the backdrop, obviously, of, of what happened with LGSM and the miners and, and the sort of condition that Britain was in. You said in the previous, um, in part one, about Thatcher had come in. She was previously a minister in the Heath government and it was she was like the harbinger of doom and everyone knew how bad she was. And we said also earlier about during periods of sort of economic crisis or societal upheaval, sexuality and, and the working class are often focused on by ruling class element because they're scared of revolution, basically, so they need a way of sort of getting society back on track. And Thatcherism, like Stuart Hall wrote, obviously on the one hand it was an economic system of you know, neoliberalism, but it had a massive cultural element, isn't it? It was, um, you know, she talked about, she brought back this sort of militant patriotism. I think Anthony Barnett called it Churchillism. You know, you got the Falklands War in 1982. She starts talking about the nuclear family. And you were saying off air, guys, that there's the press and the media and it was just, I think she said the gloves are off or something for the... For the right, how how did it feel in terms of the society changing? Well, it, I mean, it was quite shocking when she got into power. It really was because she was so strident, and it, it this was a, a absolute sea change in in approach of a, of a politician. And she didn't hold anything back. She she, she was honest, yeah. But it's it's only in retrospect now that you just see how absolutely dreadful she was at the time it was a, I think personally I was a little bit shell-shocked by her it's like what's going on do you know what I mean I don't I don't believe this what, what what's happening you know she provoked that uh, Falklands war she's got really low ratings in the polls and of course there's nothing like a bit of jingoism to, to boost your ratings and that's exactly what happens when the uh, Belgrano was was bombed and she met the press the next day she said to them rejoice gentlemen rejoice you know she directed them what to think and how to say i don't know i mean i, I get in her here it's a good job this isn't television really because get and i have actually got phone coming out <laughs> that word thatcher still invokes this epilepsy. Hate. <laughs> yeah and i mean it was clear right from the start. I mean, that 1979 election campaign was very much about union bashing. Mm-hmm. It was about the argument that trade unions had far too much power, that they needed to be brought under control. And, of course, people were aware that the previous, the, the Heath government had been brought down by trade union power. Certainly for the two elections in 1974, Labour Party had won uh, against the question being posed by the Conservatives as to who governs Britain, is it the government or is it the trade unions? And, you know, on that occasion, they got a rude awakening. But they came back <laughs> in 79 very much having planned what they were going to do in response. And the election campaign itself was bitterly anti-trade union. So it was obvious what was coming. It wasn't until 30 years later, with cabinet papers being released under 30-year rule, that it became quite clear how much of planning gone into it. But, you know, they had been planning during opposition how they're going to bring trade unions to heel and they had an extremely well developed plan 
Nicholas Ridley had in particular been tasked with developing that plan and it was clear from the papers released under 30 year rule that you know they had decided specifically to target the National Union of Mine Workers and they brought in a whole series of policies they very quickly started bringing in those policies so even really fundamental things like energy policy were were influenced by the decision to bring the trade unions to heel so there was a move from coal burning to gas burning and to nuclear power and in looking at those cabinet papers now it is absolutely stated categorically that the purpose of this was to to uh, enable the um the, the government to win a strike with uh, again to win a, a strike by the national union of mine workers similarly with policing they introduced the tactical support groups they militarized the police they specifically mandated the police to prepare for civil unrest and for strike breaking um, they set up contingency plans for strike breaking by lorry drivers to move coal around they started stockpiling coal so by the time by 84 when the strike was actually triggered you know that was very much a government plan to trigger that strike at that particular point so uh, the closure of Corton Wood was really just lighting a fuse on the plan that had been laid well beforehand with the intention of bringing the NUM out on strike and to do it at a point when they thought they could win talk about a long game and it, it, it started in March, so right yeah. at the end of winter, when there was less need for coal with those huge stockpiles. That's, that wasn't a coincidence. That, again, was part of the plan. If, if you look at the Ridley, Ridley report, or Ridley plan, as it's sometimes called, uh, which was this plan before they got into office in '79, the very end chapter of it, it's only about 20-odd page long document, he actually says, countering the political threat. And that's very chilly because it's all this strategy. yeah. And don't forget, a lot of this stuff w- went in concert with the privatisation plans because privatisation wasn't just about profiteering, you know, bringing things back into private hands rather than state control, but it was about wiping, a, again, wiping another layer of democracy out of it because when things were under state control then the people have some kind of say in it mm. when it's in private hands that they they don't. And of course, if you destroy the trade union movement and then you put these, you know, what in today's terms would be billion pound state assets into private hands, then what you can do is you can suppress wages because the trade unions are no longer a, a powerful fighting for working class people. And that's what we've seen and see today, 40 years later. You know, we haven't had a, a pay increase in the public sector for 10 years which is really means it's a pay cuts because of course inflation has, has, has increased over that last 10 years uh, and well we've now got a, a world where the divide between the rich and the poor globally is bigger than it's ever been in human history and it, we're on an insane trajectory because a lot of that global wealth that, that the, the billionaires have isn't even invested it's not going anywhere, it's not doing anything. So it's just, they buy oil paintings at £50 million pounds a, a, a pot. Well, that's not doing anybody any good apart from art dealers. And meanwhile, the rest of society is underfunded because of, of, of that kind of constraint, that, that economic constraint. And you, that is literally impossible to carry on with that. It will lead to... A horrendous situation. Uh, if 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 we don't do something about it, and we have to wrest 
that back here. When Thatcher got in, people like Rupert Murdoch loved it here. And so the son was forever championing Thatcher. She champ they championed her forays in the Falkland War uh, and they've championed her all the way through. So, you know, it wasn't just about changing the economic system. It wasn't just about changing the political system, as you quite rightly say. It was a cultural thing. They'd worked that one out, that they had to change what what in Marxist terms is called the hegemony. How would you define hegemony? It's like a, the ruling dominant culture, the rule dominant thinking. And that was very much part of the plan as well and promulgated by kind of jingoism, nationalism, creating a narrative that the unions were too powerful. No, they weren't too powerful, but they were fighting for and achieving better pay and a lot of people forget that in 1970s we had terrible inflation so although people were getting big pay rises it really didn't make a lot of difference yeah. because actually the cost of living was going up enormously and what created the uh, there was a bin men strike when rubbish was piled oh, yeah. up everywhere and there's I think one it's happening in Cardiff isn't it <laughs> yeah, <there's laughs> winter I think there was one uh, body that wasn't well, dead, left and buried. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, the media swooped on that one and said, "Look at these people," because in those workers were the poorest elements of society. Yeah. yeah, and they were going on strike because they were desperate because of that inflation, because they weren't getting wage increases. That bit, the right wing media conveniently misses out and just says, "Oh, the unions are too powerful and there's dead bodies everywhere," etc. No truth. And that one dead body it. ended up leading their. Uh, Conservative Party. <laughs> <laughs> but, but this is, as, as you, you said, about the, the global dimension, and earlier you spoke about Pinochet, Mike, and, and I think it is important to remember that this is, yes, it did happen, obviously the miners' strike and it happened in the UK, but this is part of a wave that's happening across the world. You know, you've got the coup in Chile, then you've got Reagan, you know, Thatcher's other best friend, I think he fired the air traffic controllers en masse, it was in 1980. And that was sort of like the green light. It was like, right, this is going to happen. And then, as you said, they really prepared for this long class war when they were out of office. And when they came in, they had this frighteningly well-thought-out plan which involved infiltration of the NUM by security services. Uh, as you said, scab lorry drivers all prepped. Did they, is it Democratic Union Mine Workers, has that been set up beforehand or was that something no, that, that happened? Uh, during the but, and, so, and the media, as you said, are ramping up their attacks on like, union barons and things like that. Within this, like, Milieu. <laughs> I was feeling uncomfortable saying the word milieu. Um, um, people say it a lot in academia. Um, were there attacks on the gay community sort of alongside the trade unionists or, or what was it like for the gay community under Thatcherism? Yeah, there were certainly attacks on any kind of institutional support for the gay community. So the GLC, for instance, yeah. was vilified for the stuff that it was doing for the gay community. People who published, you know, there was Eric Lives With Somebody and somebody. Yeah. Um, so, so Jenny, Jenny lives with Eric and Martin. Oh, Jenny yeah, Martin. I remember Jenny that. Jenny lives with Eric and Martin. Uh, you know, the fact that uh, gay positive, LGBT positive stuff was getting into schools and school libraries and such like became a a media, I mean, a focus for media attacks and, and for, for government attacks. I mean, government ministers were um, speaking out against this sort of thing and it led eventually to... Um, Section 28 and this whole idea of making the promotion of homosexuality as a pretend family yeah. relationship, making that illegal. So, yeah, certainly the, the LGBT community was starting to become very much under attack. 
I think there was a, an increase in police harassment, the use of pretty police to entrap people in cruising areas and public toilets and such like. I, f- I found the um, concept of the pretty police just be really just crazy. Just like have all like the police officers line up and they get called out who's the most handsome to go undercover, like to kind of solicit, really, yeah, yeah solicit, to, hang, uh, to hang out in public toilets. So, so that was illegal for the police to do that. It's entrapment. entrapment. It's entrapment, yeah. yeah. And also they were soliciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ironic. Yeah. So, um, th- oh, sorry, just going sorry. back to Section 28, what was so clever and wicked about that is that there wasn't a single prosecution under Section 28, and I don't think that was ever intended, yeah, because that would create martyrs. But what was intended was it would make think, people think twice. So in, in order to counter the more progressive local authorities like Haringey, for example, where Bernie Grant was uh, leader of that council, and they were promoting LGBT rights and, and, and so forth. What Section 28 was there is was to make local authorities think twice about doing anything like that. And do you know the impact, although that was repealed eventually by a Labour government, the impact of that is still there today. There yep. are some schools where they're just a little bit worried about it. Well, there's a big there's a protest recently in uh, Birmingham, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, absolutely. parents concerned about the promotion of uh, LGBT yeah. things. And when you think about it, I mean, the, the, I remember the analysis of the time, that word promotion is just a nonsense word. Yeah, what, what does promotion mean? Do you know what I mean? And and what are family values? Do you know what I mean? They're like, you know, I'm gay. I came from a family. I'm not an alien being. I wasn't put here from the gay planet somewhere and just <laughs> like, <laughs> go down to Earth. Yeah. Um, and for being gay Earth, is part of family. Yeah. Yeah. And there are mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and brothers and sisters and children who are LGBT have been, are, always will be. We are part of families. It's as simple as that. So this leads us neatly on to, I guess, the, the genesis of LGSM. I get, well, so tell us how you decided to create this group. Well, okay. So the minus strike started in the March. Uh, it was getting massive uh, coverage on, on TV people like Gethin and a lot of people who eventually became activists within within LGSM were already supporting the miners but not in not with an LGBT uh, t-shirt on yeah, yeah. as trade unionists or party political members Labour Party etc um, um, I had become friends with Mark Ashton I've volunteered to, to uh, work on Lesbian and Gay Switchboard which was a counselling service for lesbians and gay men and apologies to the younger people who use LGBT plus acronyms historically it's correct to say it was lesbians and gays that's that's where the consciousness was then and Mark interviewed me to be a volunteer on switchboard I got in on that got to know Mark very well realized not only was he a gay activist but he was a, a screaming lefty <laughs> it's quite little light interlude here when you were a volunteer on switchboard not only did you have to kind of answer the telephone calls which were from all over the world it was a very interesting job sometimes very sad mm. sometimes funny uh, but you also had to have an admin job and my my great important admin job was to be map person so there was a, a big picture of the a map of the uk and i had to put colored maps on here's a legal advice service there's a sexual health clinic, there's a gay bar, blah, 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 blah. 
and Mark, typically Mark, he was so mischievous was Mark. <laughs> uh, he was already then, I think, General Secretary of the Young Communist yeah. League. So he took it on himself to look after the religious file. <laughs> now, Mark would never do a disservice to the callers, so he was always good and supportive and helpful. And so you get kind of people who are struggling with the sexuality and the religion, particularly Catholics. And Mark would always be helpful to them. But internally, within the organisation, not public-facing, his folder, you know, religious file, was absolutely covered on the outside with all kinds of communist iconography, <laughs> like hammers and sickles and uh, religion is the opium of the masters and stuff like that. And that just sums up Mark, do you know what I mean? He was a mischievous to the nth degree. And I was passing him in... Uh, uh, just a week before the 1984 Gay Pride March here in King's Cross. And he just said, oh, my, the Pride at the weekend. Now, do you fancy taking a couple of buckets and, and collecting for the miners? Which we did. And we were astonished in the amount of support that we got. Mm-hmm. Not only financially, we got 200 quid, which obviously yeah. 35 years ago was worth a lot more today. But it wasn't so much that, it was the passion with which people offered that support. You know, so many LGBT people hated Thatcher and and knew what was happening to the mine. It was just appalling. And then at the end of that day, there was a a rally that had already been organised by Labour campaign for lesbian and gay rights. Says he looking at getting just to double check the facts, uh, which had nothing to do with Mark and I, but we went along to it. And they'd organised for a young Kent miner to come and speak to people. Uh, so the, the Gay Pride March then was still political. Hooray! And um, so the meeting was at the what was the University of London's headquarters in, in, in Gower Street in, in London. And the room, the meeting was packed. It was standing room only. Uh, there's another collection. The young miner got a huge round of applause. And so we left that meeting and Mark said, my God, we're on to something here. And he, Mark, put a little advert in Gay, Capital Gay, which is a free newspaper at the time, saying, Sport the Miners, come along to a meeting. And 11 of us met uh, the following Sunday. Uh, were you one of them? No, I wasn't. Right, okay. Me, Mark, and, and nine others. And that was how LGSM started. So we weren't alone. There were other LGBT already kind of working on this. Like I say, like Labour campaign for lesbian and gay rights and Labour young socialists. But we were doing this autonomously. And that might be something that maybe you might want to speak about. Why we did that. Wearing the LGBT t-shirt rather than as a trade unionist or a member of the Labour Party. Yeah, well, as, as Mike said, I mean, I like lots of other people, I was already involved in collecting money for the miners and organising support and the rest of it. So through Lewisham Labour Party, I was in, involved in supporting Tower Colliery um, through my trade union at work, I was in, involved in supporting a, some mining communities in Yorkshire and the rest of it. And I was just kind of getting on doing that kind of stuff. And then I went to the Gay Pride March and like Mike and Mark, I went to that meeting at Yulu uh, where that young... Kent Minor spoke, and then I think I must have gone to France because Gay Pride March always clashed with my grandmother's birthday, so I <laughs> always had to fly off the next day. Or Should have took her on the there. train. So, so um, Grand, everyone's having for your birthday. Well, I, I mean, my mum's been on a few now, but um, oh. my grandmother died a few years ago, so she, she never came on. But my, my mother's certainly been on Gay Pride Marches. Um, so I missed that first meeting because I was I, I was away. But then a week or two later, 
um, along with Reggie and Ray, I I turned up to a meeting and kind of got involved from there. Um, and Reggie and Ray weren't particularly political. Were they, they weren't. No, I mean, well, well, Ray was. Ray had. I I knew Ray through work. Um, I, he he'd been involved um, in a strike at the Economist Bookshop, so he'd actually been out on strike for twelve months himself. So he knew something about, you know, what a long strike yeah. was like on an individual basis. Reggie, I knew because he he ended up moving in with us in in, in a gay squat in in New Cross when he graduated from university and came to London for kind of week's holiday paid for by his parents to go to the theatre and never went back. <laughs> well, actually, he did. He went back very briefly. Um, I saw him off at Euston Station like, on Friday night and, like, Tuesday morning he was back. <laughs> Clean underwear. Uh, yeah. um, Some more money, like. <laughs> so, yeah, so, that, so basically that's how I got involved in, in LGSM. And then, well, the growth of the group was just astonishing. Yeah. I, I, I say astonishing, but we'd, we'd had a feel for that because of the responses we were getting. So we were hope, we didn't have any money as an organisation, a brand new group. And people kind of, you know, say, why do you do it as an LGBT group? Well, again, it's about identity. It's about... Well, it was bringing together those kind of different strands, wasn't it? So it was like kind of bringing together that badge wearing in your face out... Um, politics uh, and more organised trade union and, and political organising. And I suppose because we were socialists, our natural tendency was to be communal, to be together. Yeah. You know, you, you can't fight gay liberation on your own. That's just ridiculous. You can't fight anything on your own. But all it takes is two of you. That's all it takes. Two two people start movements. Do you know what I mean? I guess the other thing is it was just a lot more fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, like kind yeah. of. It's one thing, you know, going out collecting with Labour Party colleagues or whatever, and it's a bit serious and all the rest of it. But then, you know, you, you end up with Reggie Blender Hassett and Mark Ashton and the Feather Duster. And you're kind of, yeah. like, I just remember this scene with them two and the Feather Duster. And, you know, how much fun can you have with the Feather Duster? Well, actually, it's a hell of a lot if you're a couple of camp queens. <laughs> well, exactly. You, you mentioned a bell earlier and that every week, uh, we'd plan out every week who was going to collect where. Yeah, what day and what venue and so forth and there was always a huge scrabble to collect at the bell I mean it was just ridiculous yeah. it was sometimes like eight of us collecting at the bell because that's where all the cute people were do you know what I mean it was all studenty and unemployed and alternative and so on so we decided we'd meet weekly um, uh, swap different venues at one point we were meeting at the GLC's uh, offices uh, then we moved to Gay's Word Bookshop, but the group grew exponentially. It grew so quickly that Gay's Word really, we didn't have more than about three or four meetings uh, until it just became too tiny for us. And then eventually we ended up at a, 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 a newish gay bar in Islington called um, The Fallen Angel. And at our height, we'd have 50 or 60 people turning up at mm. the meeting. Yeah. And people would be coming through from all over the world. Do you know what I mean? We'd have Italian comrades, Australians, Americans, uh, people from Dublin came over. There was a meeting, as you might imagine, of different political uh, interpretations, different aspects of the left. But what was so wonderful about the miners' strike, because it was so monumental, it's been yeah. described as a civil war without guns, and it really was a bit like that. 
it drew in a lot of people who've never been involved in politics before for all kinds of different reasons. I think uh, Reggie's was talking about it. I asked him about this fairly recently. And he said he supported it, not necessarily because he came from any socialist ideology, but just in terms of natural justice. He yeah. just thought this was not just yeah, to be attacking kind of people like this. Well, of or course, starving them back to work. Yeah, yes, anyway, yeah. quite, quite. Uh, well, of course, the, the the left factions throughout Britain, including LGSM, were salivating at all this new, new blood that was being drawn in. I was never personally particularly a party political animal. I, I joined the Labour Party when I was a teenager, and that lasted until I was about 19, 20, when I started to learn about politics, and then I realised that <laughs> the Labour Party really wasn't a political organisation. <laughs> uh, and so I, I'm not... And I'm neither ashamed nor proud of this, but I really wasn't into party politics. And then I found myself just like being secretary of LGSM. And this was really the first time I'd had a passion where I got some kind of control and so forth. So I really worked doggedly at being a very good secretary. And it was all about collecting money for the miners propagandising in support of the miners and trying to get that harness, that support in the LGBT community. So we'd meet weekly and war betide anybody who said that they'd collect at so-and-so bar and they'd fail to and fail to tell us because mm. we'd missed an opportunity. So yeah. the people used to get their knuckles wrapped for that. There was a point, and different people from LGSM have a different interpretation of this, so I'll try and say it in the, in the, in the, in the most neutral way I can. There was a point when the political left within the different factions within LGSM were having these really obtuse arguments with each other and it was boring the pants and the knickers off some of the men and, and the women who were there who didn't, A, it went over their heads and this isn't really what we're here for, it's for the miners. And th this was resolved by Mark um, coming in one day with this. Uh, we only passed two motions ever in the nine months of our existence. And he came in with this resolution, and typically more, he'd written it out scroll-like on a piece of paper. It's all rolled up. <laughs> so he, he unfolded some red out his proposal with a very serious face. And basically, it was really simple. LJSM is open to anybody who's lesbian and gay. Um, we have two uh, things to do. We have to uh, collect to support the, the strike fund and we have to support the NUM and the striking miners. It was really simple. And that somehow seemed to do the trick, and all that kind of factional infighting just kind of dropped away. Because I think everybody would realised for, for the greater good this was necessary. And that's when I think the magic happened, because then we became a really efficient, well-organised little fighting force. We're over-eggs. Yeah, there were only really 10 or 15 of us who were the key activists mm. in it. We may have had 50, 60 people at our zenith, but not, we didn't have 50, 60 people every week going out collecting for the mines. So as I say, there were 10 or 15 of us who were the, who were the key activists. LGSM groups then spontaneously sprung up all around the country, obviously not as big as London, because London's a big city. Uh, so we ended up with 10 LGSM groups all around the country. The politics of the time was such that we wished them well, but there was no desire or will to, to or point in making a national organisation of it. It was just our 
duties so well done if you need any help from london mm. you, you can have it you know and some were just like two people in southampton mm. who formed southampton unless we negate support the miners group our first outing as it were so we formed in july i think it was yes after yeah, Pride. yeah Pride i know it'd be 28th of june more or less and uh, our first outing, we decided to join the National Women's Demo in support of the miners. So these were women against pit closures, miners' wives and women from the mining communities, and the men, of course. And Mark had made this banner. And, you know, for years on the runway outside his flat, there was a big paint stain because he'd, he'd actually painted it on the, on the runway outside his block of flats in uh, Elephant and Castle in London. It was a really impractical banner because it was made from canvas and it was three metres wide by one metre deep, so it's huge. And of course, canvas, when it rains, gets yeah. wet. It's, yeah, so if it was rainy, which, you know, it's <laughs> written, it was. Yeah, uh, you got this thing, it was like trying to hold a galleon back. <laughs> sort of uh, but it, it done it himself. Uh, it was a really clever little banner as well. It was very stylish and it's still really kind of, even today it's quite stylish but what was really clever about it on the reverse of it he'd written out the first verse of solidarity forever uh, which was flanked on either side by uh, thatcher at one side looking manic and a fat copper at the other side of it so of course then whenever we went on on marches everybody's behind the banner and they can see the words so that became our kind of anthem solidarity forever and it's the only song that I can remember apart from Happy Birthday. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, the very first screening of Pride, when I told Stephen Barrison about the, the role of that song, it opens with Woody Guthrie, I think, yeah, yeah. singing so that it's forget forever. You were talking about tears earlier. I started crying immediately. <laughs> I'm about a minute into the film, and it's like, oh my God. <laughs> I guess one of the things that we did fairly soon was obviously that link with so the women's new style lessons on Javari. You can talk about the women's. Yes, class. sorry, yeah, I forgot yeah, that. Yeah. So, so that was the very first outing. Sorry, I'd forgotten that. Um, and we, everybody gathered at the embankment. We were nervous about what the yeah. reaction would be. Nervous, but don't forget, we were all prepared to deal with homophobia. We're doing it every day of our lives, so it, you know, we we were tough. We could deal with it, but it, obviously, it's never very nice when it happens. Anyway, eventually got this bloody galleon sail up in the air with all the hardware. I had to make special poles for it and fittings. And as we lifted up, you could see people start to turn around and look at it and talk to each other. It caused a little buzz. And then people started putting their thumbs up and people started clapping. So that was the very first reaction. And that was really kind of, wow, that's good. <laughs> we got through that one. It was a national women's demo. And women tend to be predisposed to be getting on with gay men better than straight men get on with gay men, less threat, etc. Uh, but even so, that was a really good good sign. And then it just went from strength to strength. Yeah, and then obviously we, we started that relationship with Neath the Licensed Wansi Valley Minor Support Group. And we started visiting them. They started visiting us. How did that come about, Gethin? Because obviously in the in the film, there's all the you 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 ringing around there. This um, yeah, Mark Ashton's character ringing around. I forget the actor who played him, but he was was brilliant. I think, but he played he was ringing around various lodges and trying to garner support. And then it's on in the film. I think it's just the per, first person who picks up the film. Yeah, was, yeah. I, I mean that's all kind film. of um, poetic license, isn't it? That 
I mean, I think the link came through Hugh, is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the people who was involved ha- had a connection with Neath the Lessons Wansley Valley. Okay. And basically put us in touch. It turned out, actually, that um, Mark and Paul Francis kind of knew each other by through the telephone, because one of the things that Mark did, he, he worked as a volunteer receptionist at King Street, the uh, headquarters of the Communist Party. And in those days, Howell was in the Communist Party and he would regularly be in touch with King Street. So they'd spoken on the phone fairly often. And I think they kind of made that connection once the, the initial connection was made to an LGSM and, and the support group there. And Labour campaign for lesbian and gay rights had already donated a boat. Yeah. I think the money from that... From, from that meeting in, yeah. in Yulu. Yeah. Um, so there was a little bit of a connection. And I think that was cemented very, very quickly once we once we mm. kind of got in touch. So there, were, there was that initial meeting with Di Donovan. And the scene in the movie yeah. where we meet outside Paddington Station yeah. by Zebra Crossing is absolutely true. Oh, absolutely really? Absolutely yeah. true, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And we went into a local cafe. Um, was it a wimpy? No, it was a no. little private, really private calf, you know, in, Pre- uh, in Prague Street in, in Paddington. And what Di said and his interpretations and everything, he was the perfect man. They, they, they weren't daft when they chose Di to be their kind of flying representative because he was intelligent, he was articulate, he was liberal-minded. He didn't, he didn't give a stuff about us being gay. I just didn't even, he didn't even talk about it, really. He just accepted it. And I mean, I do think that Neathless and Swansea Valley were also the perfect communities for us to link with because they were communities which had that real deep understanding of solidarity. Um, mm. Onto as welfare, you know, kind of this amazing tradition of internationalism, the links with the Spanish Spanish Republic yeah. and um, the support given to, to, to Spain, the connections with... Uh, Paul Robeson, even you know, in 1968 during the nurses' strike, Dallas Valley Miners went out on strike in support of nurses. I mean, I'm my mother's side of the family is from Bethesda. Um, most of my fam- male members on that side worked in Penrith Quarry, yeah. so there was a Penrith Quarry strike 1901 to 1903, I think, was it? Yeah, okay, well, the, against the manor house guy, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. Pen, uh, Pen, yeah, Lord Penrith. So, you know, there was a two a strike of more than two years then, Dallas Valley miners had sent um, oh, support up to, to Bethesda. So there's kind of an amazing tradition mm. of solidarity and understanding of solidarity. So certainly for me, you know, going down that first time, staying with Sean and the rest of it, she's from Abercrave, which again had that kind of connection with Spain from, oh, I, can't, I think it was 1911, when coal owners brought in um, strike breakers yeah. from, from, from the Asturias. Uh, from northern Spain, um, who turned out to be anarcho-syndicalists, yeah. so immediately joined. Them. <laughs> yeah. So there's a real connection. Well, they ended up leading them, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. So you know, you know. So I, I think we've gone past something called Spaniard Row. And I oh, said, you know, why is that called Spaniard Row? And then kind of Sean started explaining, and you know, she's got family members who are called Antonio and mm-hmm. uh, Pedro and all the rest of it. So Fantastic. you know, there's a like kind of real connection there. So we started talking about those kind of things, and it became very obvious that we had masses and masses in common in terms of our political heroes and our um, thinking on all sorts of stuff. So we very, very quickly, I think, established real deep friendships with those people, and particularly the women, but not only the women. I mean, there were people like Martin and um, Di Donovan and Di Williams, uh, Di Williams who became really close friends as well. Mm. I was a bit surprised when I first went down to Wales because 
my background in Lancashire was seeing whole industrial belts where there was all kinds of industries. I mean, Accrington had the chemical works, gas works, coal mines, dog biscuit factory, all kinds of stuff like that. And it was filthy, it was ugly, uh, it was surrounded by treeless moors. And that's what I was expecting when I went down to Wales. And boy, did I have a shock. Do you know what I mean? It was just so beautiful. Uh, you know, that part of Wales is really ancient uh, beach. It's not mountainous, but it's very hilly. Uh, beautiful little rivers running down the valleys. Uh, and then occasionally this little winding gear to, to a pit would be there. There were no big pits there. It was lots of small pits. And yeah, you'd have an ugly little slack heap next to it. But I've always said it's pits and sheep, you know, a, a great contrast to my background. So the coal industry was the only industry. And indeed, I've found out in recent years, there was often during lambing season, massive absenteeism in the pits because to augment their poor wages, a lot of miners were small time shepherds. Yeah, right. yeah. So, you know, they couldn't afford to go to the pit because it, it, it was lambing season. So from that point, it was very, very similar to Bethesda. Yeah. You know, kind of quarrymen, yeah. like yeah. my family are quarrymen and, and farmers. So they, they have sheep and or used to have sheep and working working in the quarry. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like almost like a patchwork of the Industrial Revolution. It's just in the middle of, especially in Bethesda, it's like, and like, um, what's the valley up by Carnarvon? Um, it goes all the way down to Port Maddock, um, the Nantle Valley. Um, yeah, you know, and it's yeah. just kind of in the it, it's in the industri- Industrial Revolution hidden within like rurality, and it's just amazing contrast. As you yeah, say, like it's just yeah. all this beauty. And, um, yeah. and when, that, I, when I first met the actor, I can't remember his name now. The actor who plays Martin in the film. Because um, we, 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 we appeared as um, extras in the film, so uh, we were just kind of walking along, being filmed, whatever, and I was chatting away to him, and like any two Welshmen would get together. Within about 10 minutes, we'd kind of not actually work out how we were relating, but we had, we had, we had worked out that my great grandfather and his grandfather had worked together in Benry Quarry. Really? Wow. <laughs> we, yeah, because within Wales, and this is, I think, something that's often overlooked within like Welsh historiography, the movement between coalfields in the north and the south and the sharing of ideas and militancy moving between them. Absolutely. Um, I mean, my father's father um, w- w- was a coal miner in Tylerstown, and my mother's father was a quarryman in North Wales. Probably a lot more movement between north and south Wales then uh, <laughs> between pits perhaps just, um, just just going back to picking up what Gethin was saying about the, the role of the union as well you know so 1945 get the introduction of, of, of the welfare state but the, the the mining union in South Wales originally called the South Wales Miners Federation had been ex- in existence for probably a century mm. up till then and so those working class mining communities basically provided welfare yeah they built libraries they built swimming pools they they augmented a, a rudimentary health service yeah and that was all by the union and also of course it propagated militant political leaders and no wonder thatcherism wanted to destroy that industry because they wanted to destroy the culture they wanted to destroy that genesis of militancy of autonomy of self-reliance which is what the mining communities were all about i mean you still got I me mean, i always remember in school when I, I just sort of had my political awakening probably for like, like listening to raging machine and things like that and for whatever reason there was a show 
that we went to in my Steg Town Hall. And I was absolutely thrilled to see a massive plaque to all the miners from my Steg. Um, you know, in the well, the Dufferin and Tlindy Valley, so you know the valley that's connected with Porth Coal, that they'd all gone and fought there, and it was just like the it seemed completely alien to me that this had happened, but it was just awesome that these monuments were still there, like miners' welfare halls and stuff, which sadly has kind of mm. all sort of disappeared. The other thing you you said about Nathan in, in the book in Pride, like so, Di Donovan had actually, you know, he, he's not like a doughboy. He's actually come down to London to do reconnaissance yeah. and things like that. And, and you said he's also he was an NUM or yeah, he was, he, he was a Transport General Workers Union member because he was. Um, an electrician, was he? Or? No, I don't think so. He worked in the coal wash. I can't remember. Oh, w- worked in an uncle washer, he's right. But that was useful. Well, yeah, because the NUM on a national level had kind of divided the UK up into different territories and allocated certain territories to certain coal fields. Uh, London, I think, was um, had been allocated to Yorkshire and Nottinghamshire. So Welsh miners really shouldn't have been here <laughs> collecting. Uh, so initially that was all done very under the radar and very much through connections through rugby um, right so building I think on on those connections again through rugby which which had been established in the um, in the 72 strike and the 74 strike between London and Welsh between L- yeah between London and Welsh rugby and uh, and South Wales coalfields did it also help I don't want to put words in but did it also help the you know the fact obviously that the time the NUM had been were being surveilled and you know under constant surveillance. Did it help that was that anything to do with the fact that Di Donovan wasn't? Did it help that he wasn't anywhere in that sense? Do you think or or is that something another? No, I suspect they probably paranoid. knew pretty much who was who and who was yeah. doing what. Yeah. Well, wasn't his phone tapped and everything? So. I think everybody's phone was probably tapped. tapped. Yeah. <laughs> Insofar as people had phones. Yeah, and, and I think by the way sometimes that is done to intimidate. Yes. Yeah. Eight, seven eight years after yeah. the big miners' strike, there was another one, and I was actually by sheer coincidence living in a mining community, and I was got very obviously got really actively involved and. Everybody's phones was tapped. Mm. You know, you pick your phone up and you'd hear all this clicking. Uh, one woman picked the phone up and actually heard her own conversation <laughs> playing back to her. But from the future, she's like, "What?" Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know. So I think, as well as it being surveillance, it was also done as an attempt to, to um, intimidate. Of course, he had the absolute opposite effect. Yeah. The, just before I forget, one of the wonderful things in London about about the strike was just on every street corner you. You know, you'd hear all these regional voices, Welsh yeah. accents, Yorkshire accents, Lancashire accents, Scots accents. There isn't such a thing as a Kent accent in that sense. It was probably Scottish, actually, because an awful lot of miners in Kent were from Scotland. Every street corner, every tube station, sport the miners, dig deep for the miners. And, you know, you just felt, yay, yeah. it's us. Do you know what I mean? It's us Northerners. It's us working class people who are here with a visible presence on, on the street. So after the initial meeting with you said Sean, who was betrayed by again, forget the name of the actress in the in the film, is that the basically the big redheaded lady? Is that yeah? Um, um, and I was going to say <laughs> I was going to say Tilda Swindon. <laughs> no, <laughs> she's a, yeah. Um, yeah, she probably could though. You'd be like, oh, well done. But that was one of the. I actually got nervous, you know, watching it. You know, the initial. So you've met, you've spoken over the phone, presumably, and then you actually travel down to South Wales. I mean. It felt intimidating in the film. Do you know what I mean? I was wondering. It, it, yeah. That's dramatic license. Yeah. I must say, Stephen Beresford, whose brainchild pride the movie 
has been right from the beginning. He made it abundantly clear to us that he didn't want to make a documentary. Yeah. And the reason he didn't want to make a documentary is because he wanted this story to go as worldwide as possible. So it had to be a big commercial movie. And because of that, you guys have to understand, I will have to invent fictional characters and fictional events. It's all making movies is all about jeopardy. It's yeah. all about leaving the audience thinking, <gasps> what's going to happen next? Yeah. yeah. So he had to create that drama. What really happened on that very first visit, ironically, if he had told the truth, I don't think people would have believed mm. it. But what actually happened, not the eight of us as it's portrayed in the movie, there were 27 of us went in three minibuses. Uh, we got lost in the valleys. So what should have been a four, four and a half hour journey took at least six. We left London at six o'clock and got there. Actually, it was seven hours. We got there at one o'clock in the morning. Of course, this is pre-mobile phones, so we had to keep keep finding phone boxes and phone through to die, who was like our anchor man. And the original plan was that we would arrive there in sufficient at the welfare hall in sufficient time for the different mining families who'd agreed to put us up to take us to the different homes. Eventually, I had to say, look, it's too late now. You'll all have to come and stay. I've got quite a big living room. You'll all have to come and stay in mine. <laughs> so we pulled up at one o'clock in the morning. This, I think it's the last village before the Brecon Beacons. And it's where? Really remote, yeah. And there's a pub next door to it called the Ancient Britain. This is one o'clock in the morning. And I'm, in the, I'm driving the front minibus. And as I parked up, everybody's squawking away in the back of the minibus. And I said, shut up, you lot, look. And I pointed to the ancient Britain at one o'clock in the morning. All these men are coming out in drag. <laughs> <laughs> and talk about confusion. It's like, you're not meant to do that. We're meant to do that. <laughs> anyway, we piled into uh, Di and Margaret's house. They have two children. They had two border collies. So there's 27 lesbians and gay men. Di and Margaret and two border collies. So there's only two, it feels like a lot more. What? I think there might have been four there actually. There might have been twelve, wasn't <laughs> yeah. it? There's an awful lot of border collies. There are a anyway. thousand border collies. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we all kind of crashed out there. Uh, the next day we had to meet to at the welfare hall to go to a, a rally in Swansea. And then we came back, we were all then... Uh, farmed out amongst the different families who were putting us up not just families there was also a single man called Grist (laughs) who also agreed to uh, take two people Uh, and then we were all asked to get back to the car park of the uh, online welfare at 7 o'clock now what happened during the miners strike is that the mining communities would invite their supporters to come and stay with them to help further build that 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 sense of solidarity to show how they were using our money etc that we, we painstakingly raised for them so we arrived at, at seven o'clock and uh 27 hours and we walked into the building and at first i was really disappointed because it was this tiny little bar full of old men smoking and playing dominoes <laughs> was that it yeah and then we went through a Another door out of that bar, diagonally across where we come in from, into this big corridor, and then you can see there's this huge concert room in there with double swing doors. And as we walked in, uh, the place is packed. We're not the only 
guests they've got that weekend. They've got people from Brent Nowgold, they've got people from the print unions, I think there were a few people from smaller political parties like the SWP in there. But we were certainly the biggest group of, of visitors that weekend. And we walked in, there were every generation in there. Uh, this was not, for me wasn't an alien place at all. I've been used to going to working men's clubs in Lancashire. And so it was no surprise to see kids running around, grandmas and granddads and so forth. And because it was so busy, the, the tables were all in, the chairs were all in lines. So we were kind of forced to walk along the wall, inevitably towards the bar, in single file. And as we walked in, the whole tenors of conversations dropped. And we knew that was a response to us. We were young some of us were trendy. I, I wasn't one of them. Neither, <laughs> neither were you, Gethy, neither. No, but Mark was. And Lee and Reggie were. They all had flat tops and knew how to do charity shop sheet. So we were kind of conspicuous. The tenors of the conversation dropped. And we knew that was due to us. And we didn't know what was going to happen next. And somebody started clapping. And the whole t- two to three hundred people started clapping. There's a tissue for you, don't you? <laughs> The whole two to three hundred people started clapping. And every hair stood up on my body. Dave Lewis said, yeah, and it fell out then. <laughs> every hair stood up on my body. And we just knew we were making history now. This, can you imagine this? This is two to three hundred Welsh mining families who knew nothing more about us other than two things. One, we supported them in their struggle. Two, we were queer. And whoever that person started that clapping really is, is the person who changed the world, really. Yeah, because then it was like, wow, well, you can imagine five hours later, we all were all pissed. <laughs> we were all the best of mates. And there are photographs from that very night. And there's, I remember there's Andy Dens draped over Ray, Ray Goodspeed's lap. There's a man and a, a man and a husband and wife chatting there as if this was absolutely normal. I and that was three pints then. <laughs> and that was <laughs> and in that lovely way that working class people don't uh, don't tend to be mannered, you know, in the way that the middle classes do. They went straight in there, like, what we want to know is what kind of sex you are. <laughs> Where do you meet each other? I'm asking What's for a friend there. Yes, <laughs> yes. What's a blowjob? <laughs> straight in there. Yeah. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It's like, come on, let's hands on table. Now let's just yeah. get it out, you know, blah, blah, blah. And that was it. As I said, you know, the end of that night, we'd moved from simply being comrades to beginning of friendships, which... Have lasted a lifetime mm. now. Yeah. Amazing, fantastic, absolutely. So we knew history had been made at that moment in time. Yeah. Fantastic. So it's a lot better to hear, I guess, for someone from South Wales because it's kind of a lukewarm uh, reception in the film, isn't it? And you think, oh, yeah, man, I wish yeah. Was... <laughs> that's, that's the drama. Bit, a bit embarrassed a... about being, you know, yeah. like, oh, sorry, guys. I mean, what I think happened, well, what had happened is that the week previous to us coming down. The, man, the support group had met. Mm. There had been some discussion. Some people had expressed, you know, kind of negativity towards the idea of these queers coming down. And they'd basically just been told, okay, fine, stay away. Mm. You know, if, if you're not comfortable with LGSM coming down next weekend, don't come to the welfare. Mm. Um, you can come the following weekend. So the people who were there knew that we were yeah. coming. They had decided to be there on that basis. Um, and we got a really warm 
reception. And I think once we got to know people, a lot of the people people who had been negative in the first place, uh, you know, they, they just changed their attitude. They got to know people. So in the film, obviously, there's the evil, more evil, the the, the red-headed lady who sort of conspires Maureen. against and sets her sons against, who presumably that's not true either. It's not true, although Stephen Barris probably knows more about our history than we do because obviously he had a research to yeah, look course. into. And apparently there was one woman who threatened to form the council uh, because there were like all these gays in some of these areas. And what fascinates me is what department would she have formed up? <laughs> Pest control? Yeah. We have an infestation of homosexuals <laughs> at number 17. They're on my lawn. They're on my lawn. They're everywhere. <laughs> They're um, in the walls. We can hear them. Just just going back. The, 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 so in the movie, there's that wonderful moment when uh, Gwen answers the telephone mm. and says, Hello. Oh, I see. It wasn't like that. It was a letter that we sent down introducing ourselves. And I wrote the letter being secretary. And I do remember posting it and thinking, God, I'd love to be a fly on the wall Mm -hmm. when that gets open at the other end. We only in recent years found out from Sean James exactly what happened. And that was they had their meetings weekly as we did, every Sunday as we did. And that our letter was written. Uh, read out amongst all the other correspondences that uh, that that week and when our letter was read out it was met with giggles and little bits of laughter but what was interesting was when the giggles and the laughter subsided they asked themselves what we're laughing about and so in this remote welsh mining community it in the middle of this huge strike it led on to a brief discussion about human sexuality fabulous mm, yeah <laughs> and they realized that they didn't know why they were laughing perhaps a bit embarrassed because you know we're british we don't talk about sex and i guess most of the people there knew that cliff was great they would never talk about it there would no. never be any discussion about it but they knew that cliff was gay yeah oh this is the single guy played by yeah. bill knight yeah right yeah, yeah and don't ask don't tell yeah. a lot of them would, would would knew other gay people i mean sean james's father his buddy was a gay man. Mm. Everybody knew he was gay. Mm. There's another colleague called Di Daffodil. Because <laughs> he, kind of, he had blonde hair and yeah. he was kind of tall and rather flowery. Um, you know, people knew that there were gay people in in that community. Yeah. They didn't talk about it. Yeah. But I guess having that discussion, that was part of their consciousness. I mean, you know, why, you know, we get on perfectly well but, with but, you. Yeah. Why should we bother about the ones coming yeah. down from London? But Sean... Sean outed uh, Cliff to us, didn't she? Because we were, <laughs> we were going around picking people up in our minibuses from the respective families that they were staying with to go off to a, a rally. And we pulled up outside Cliff's house. Now, Cliff had a local mate who was a, uh, an insurance salesman. And as, 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 as you lot do in Wales, uh, he was called David. So he's nicknamed uh, Die Dividend. And so we're parked up waiting for the people to come out of Cliff's house. And Sean's standing up there and she just looks at us and looks at the car and looks at Cliff's house and she says, I don't know about Cliff and Di Dividend, but Di doesn't have seem to sell Cliff a lot of insurance. <laughs> <laughs> and we just, we all knew get Cliff was gay. We got that, obviously there's a gay guy thing, and we got that right from the beginning. <laughs> so we all just roared with laughter, because like, she's saying, look, 
We all know. Yeah. It's just not so. And then Cliff, I mean, he, poor man, he, he died a few years ago. Cliff kind of, people have said to us, you know, was he out? Well, no, not in the sense that we wore these ridiculous badges and took doors out of toilets because we thought it was bourgeois. He didn't articulate it, but you think about it, there are 27 young homosexuals going to demented land in this town. If he'd have been closeted, he'd have run a mile. He didn't yeah, have anything yeah. to do with us. And he did the absolute opposite from the outset. He agreed to put people up. And then as the weeks progressed, whilst we reciprocated our visit to their valley, we reciprocated by inviting them down to us. And Cliff was one of them who came down but then he started to come down independently and they knew about it oh brilliant he was the only one who came down independently he came down once to do a fundraiser he was an amateur photographer and we we built it and got guests coming along uh, and a lot of this was his own like soft porn because it, <laughs> it was pictures of the local amateur boxing club and stuff like that. Yeah. and we were all kind of giggling like you know more oil <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. but you know bless him bless him do you know what I mean and yeah. he, did, he did tell us about it and he he had quite an active sex life including sex in the pit mm-hmm. yeah um, but what he'd never had, he'd never had what you might call an emotional relationship yeah. with another man, a loving relationship with another man. And obviously I can't say who, but he did actually sleep with one of the members of LGSM. And there is a letter. Uh, Cliff, you know, he was this amateur photography. He was gay and he, he didn't just have a typewriter, but this typewriter had this fancy script mm. to his little posh <laughs> and there's this lovely little letter just thanking this guy f- for spending the night with him and he says in it that's the first time I've ever actually spent a night with someone and that's just so beautiful yeah. so lovely yeah and then he he found himself a, a, through somebody I knew they started going out together this man who was 10 years Cliff's elder who was a, a gay man and an old lefty who was a refugee from uh, the McCarthyite era in the 50s and uh, Cliff and this guy started having a relationship so towards the end of Cliff's life he actually got there he actually had a loving meaningful relationship which is lovely. yeah amazing the other one I wanted to check on fact checking this, this the film in the film one it's almost glossed over as a, a little bit of the film because it but it, it upset me a lot you know I, I, I don't know if it's true whether that when Maureen sort of gerrymanders the meeting and they sort of agree to local NUM official comes down and says we can't accept any more money from the gays because it would you know look how that's going to play and the police are making fun of us and things like that and that didn't no 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 that was all fictionalised that was all fictionalised we never had any hostility actually the police review though the Mm. police's in-house magazine did actually talk about this once and it's it's a silly little article about miners are cuddling down for uh, tea and telly with gays do you know what I mean Gives an interesting mindset into the the territorial whatever they were um, at the time, and, and the reach of, the, of that kind of publicity that we had was astonishing. I mean, we had articles published in Australia, uh, the States, in Radical America. Somebody said that we had an article in GDR, but I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, Italy, we got invited over to Italy uh, to speak. Yeah, I, I did yeah. a speaking tour 
Steve Brenning and myself went with a striking minors rugby team. Oh, fantastic. So we flew out to Verona, uh, where we met up with them, and then we yeah. went around in a coach with the rugby team. They played rugby, and we went and spoke at various Amazing. gay venues. So we went to the Milan Gay Centre and spoke to the gay men's knitting group. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and in Bologna, we did kind of... Uh, there was a radio station in Bologna at the time. And that had an amazing time, yeah. uh, travelling around with... International Solidarity Network as well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the, the International Solidarity shown to the striking British miners was phenomenal. Well, the GDR, I'm sure, the East Germans yeah. did send. Yeah, yeah, well, did send. yeah I, I mean, um, the Italians did too. I mean, I remember this truckload of spaghetti arriving in... <laughs> don't like to remember the spaghetti. <laughs> I mean, nobody's ever seen dry pasta before. Yeah. You know, but spaghetti, spaghetti was something that came in tins in tomato sauce. Um, and... Oh, sunflower, <laughs> sunflower oil in, in yeah, a tin with yeah, a picture yeah. of a su- sunflower on it. I mean, nobody knew what that was. Yeah. Cliff, of course, knew what it was. Mm. It's squash. You <laughs> water for it. <laughs> then he decided, when he realised it was oil, he told everybody that the dry spaghetti was to be fried. He was just biscuit. Well, they fry it, they do. Yeah. Oh, I'm trying, actually. Um, <laughs> And they got so fed up with beans, didn't they? Mm-hmm. Beans and beans and beans, because meat's expensive, obviously. So they got yeah. Create loads of beans to eat. <laughs> so you've established this, you know, as you said, this amazing comradely relationship and international networks of solidarity across the world. And then, you know, you come back and forth between London and South Wales, presumably. And and at what stage then do you decide to come up with a Pits and Perverts gig? How far down the line is that? Well, we were, like I said, we were becoming such a great little fighting force that we kept having to develop these little subgroups who would be do a, a single task yeah uh, now when long before LGSM and the miners strike Mark Ashton got to know a young working class Scottish lad and they were both about the same height they were both tiny LGSM was largely uh, comprised of very small men <laughs> yeah Jonathan was a giant amongst us and Dave Lewis as well and this young Scottish man and Mark used to just run around London in drag, terrorising people, shagging all over the place. <laughs> and that young man uh, was a guy called Jimmy Somerville, who just about the beginning of the miners' strike had started to hit the big time with uh, Ronsky beat. And so it, we had a contact there. So Mark, but, and Jimmy's a socialist, uh, so Mark contacted Jimmy and said, yeah, yeah, I'll do a benefit. And so that was it. We got a big name to start with, a, a name that was ascending. A guy called Kevin Franklin uh, designed the poster for us. He was, he, that's what he did for a living. Uh, and that poster is so iconic. And again, it's really timeless. It's a, it's a wonderful piece of, of artwork. That one over there. That one over there? Oh, on yeah. The yeah. Pits and, per- Pits and Perverts wrongly... Uh, it, uh, it said that the son said that they didn't in fact that came from one of us within the group because don't forget we're in those days still where we're fighting and this comes out wonderfully in, in the movie as well when you hurled an insult what you do is you get hold of it and you throw it back in people's faces I said earlier in the interview that I used to wear a badge that said fucking queer mm. on it yeah, because it's about it then it neutralises that what's meant to be hurtful and abusive. You're just throwing it back in their faces and saying, and. <laughs> yeah. One and a half thousand people came to it. 
Ken Russell's son uh, was a member of LGSM and he borrowed three video cameras off uh, Dad to record the whole event. Every single one of them fucked up, so we've got no video <laughs> of it it's like a podcast. Yeah. We've yeah, got yeah. a few very grainy images. Now, the protocol in, 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 in was, sorry, Britain, I suppose, whenever there was a gig, a benefit gig for the miners, then any striking miners were always allowed in free to, mm. to that event. So there's one and a half thousand people in there. Uh, well, I mean, we didn't just have Bronski beat, we had all kinds of different acts. Bernard Padden, who was a gay comedian. Uh, comedian. And I'm walking round, I think I've got my Pits and Perverse t shirt on. Well, I must have done. And this young Scottish miner just said, You've got something to do with that, this event? I said, Yeah, yeah. He said, Well, I'd no idea that you people supported us. You people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, didn't mean it in a nasty way. And I just remember putting my arm around his shoulder and grinning and just said, Well, and I gestured to the one and a half thousand people. I said, well, you do know. Welcome, pal. <laughs> and that was it. Off he walked. You know what I mean? But he had this look of just like, wow, I'd, this is new to me. What, what? So you, it's that thing about people suddenly making yeah. re- different connections. They're, they're undoing the homophobia connection, inserting one that says, actually, that's bullshit. These people are just like me. And you need the human experience, don't you? You need yeah. to meet people face yeah. to face and, yeah. and, and then do those things. And, and, this is- and die, of course, he's, as the Welsh tend to be, very eloquent. <laughs> and he famously came out with that speech, which is more or less faithfully re- reproduced. And not just that, but a lot of them early on, the men, started wearing our badges. There was this great cultural exchange anyway of badges it was a real honour to be given the badge and mm. so they would ask us for our gay badges and wear them on picket lines now for us that was so potent because that's about identity it's almost like they're coming out they're not coming out as gay they're coming out as being gay friendly supporting as allies and you can imagine that they went on picket lines up against Scottish Lancastrian Yorkshire miners and people would have said, what's that gay badge about? And that would have led to yeah. the, the discussion. Now, you think about it, we're this tiny group of 10 to 15 activists supporting a tiny and very remote mining community in South Wales in a strike where the forces of the British establishment are doing everything they can to provide disinformation, etc. Now, obviously, LGSM didn't get any national coverage in in newspapers or whatever or television and yet you go on demos or whatever and you'd have miners from all over the place who'd heard about us because deprived of any other form of communication things like picket lines and demonstrations mm. became the immediate points of contact where real people trustworthy people could exchange stories and what this little group of queers had done in this remote part of South Wales just went around the British coalfields like wildfire everybody was talking about it you know, um, we're still crying again, are you? <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's a bit in another um, we want to fact we want to check or myth or whatever. Um, in the Piss and Pivots gig, the scene in the movie Pride, um, there's a little, it's not really an argument, but there's a, a sort of maybe confrontational thing between the new group Lesbians Against Pit Closures, which is kind of like a, a and LGSM, which is kind of like a, a trope that's often thrown at the left, isn't it? Like, oh, we're splitting into different groups. But you was there any tension between LAPC and LGSM? No, what what happened, uh, uh, some of the women, not all, by all, 
a long chalk, but some of the women in LGSM, quite late on in kind of November, December, don't forget the strike ended the following March, they formed their own autonomous group. Now, different people had different views on that. Some people thought it, thought it was sad that, that the women should sectionalise and, and break away. I didn't, because in the same way that we'd formed an, an, a lesbian and gay support group, an autonomous group, then I thought women had absolutely every right to also mm-hmm. themselves within that break away. And, and if that meant that there were more women involved in the strike, women who wouldn't come to a mixed group, then good luck to them. And in fact, we had friendly relationships. They sent us a formal letter, which was friendly, and, and we replied with a formal letter, which was friendly. And they organised a, a women-only benefit gig at the Kentish Town Women's Centre, uh, and LGSM helped them sort that out with logistics and I think Great. we hired a van for them to move stuff and that so you know that that was the reality reality of it and you know like I said earlier about our own uh, beginnings sometimes you have to organise autonomously you need that space intellectually politically emotionally sexually whatever so I mean I didn't have any qualms about it and some women remained in LGSM. Some women went to both. Um, so, it, it, you know, it, it, again, it's a movie trying to dramatise things. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it was. I think it was a bit about making that cheap joke about, uh, you know, I don't care if you're Arthur Scargill, don't <laughs> talk during the bingo. Oh, right. um, <laughs> and I think it was, it's one of the very few unfortunate things about the film. I think it would have been a better film if they hadn't included that. But uh, as Mike says, it was... I think very much a kind of practical thing. There were, there yeah. were a lot of women-only venues, and it made sense to have a women-only organisation to to collect from those. Tragically, I mean, the strike did get got beaten, and which as you, you know, we're still feeling the legacy of that today in March 1985. But we wanted to talk about the the legacy of LGSM and and the the solidarity that was shown with the the miners uh, in the film. Obviously, there's a famous scene where. You know, the mines go back to work, and then shortly after, you have there's the pride parade, and then bus upon bus upon bus comes down from Delice to to march with um in pride. Is that what is that exactly what happened? <laughs> not, quite, not quite. So obviously, we've got direct you know personal contact with the with the Delice Valley, uh, and and we invited them to come down on Gay Pride March, and they did. And they came down with the red minibus that um, that, that they got with our uh, donations, and one coach. Yeah, so there were about sixty people from 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 the community who came down. They bring in the trade union banners. I was just going to say they also brought their NUM banner, which of course are beautiful, huge mm. banners. And we put some publicity out in uh, Capital Gay, get uh, miners to march on on Pride. March and as we were gathering in Hyde Park, they arrived and they were assembling their banner now because they're such big banners. Mm. They were taking a lot of space up in the park, so it was kind of quite conspicuous. And I remember people arriving and saying with it almost a hint of disbelief in the voice, "Oh my God, the miners are here!" Yeah. And they'd stop. They'd just stop and just gather, and they kept gathering and gathering and gathering. And what's absolutely true in the movie was that one of the organisers came running up to us and said, 
your group is too big. We, we need you to lead it because we'll never get out of the park otherwise. And so that's exactly what happened. Now, we'd made a decision at our support group, the LGSM support group, not to lead the march. Some comrades had said we should, we're the best thing since sliced bread. And others, including me, were a bit more modest and said, no, come on, it's, it's a pride march, it's not our march. Uh, we'll just walk with the Labour and Trade Union contingent. And that had been the plan. But as I say, it didn't happen like that. And so this huge banner got held aloft and we got to the gates of Hyde Park and there was a bank of photographers. I was holding one end of the banner and I think Jonathan was holding the other end. He felt like a Hollywood superstar. All these <laughs> flashlights kept going off, in and off we set. And there's a photograph of the march as it's in progress. And... You see the LGSM banner and you can barely see the Miners Lodge banner. It's so far back because so many people just spontaneously and voluntarily just decided to march with us. Uh, we'd also got the big red band with us as well. So we've got the music and we could all sing Solidarity Forever. We embellished the our banner with bits of red ribbon and stuff and Reggie and Ray made a hundred red flags on canes for people to hold. And I more or less missed it all because I was um, <laughs> Deputy Chief Steward rear for the Gay Proud Match. So I, I was the last person to leave uh, oh, and all the LGSM contingents had actually arrived at Jubilee Gardens before I even left Hyde Park. Shows your technology's move, isn't it? Because mm. there's no videos of yeah. it. Because there weren't, you know. Well, there were videos, obviously, but they were expensive. But we got lots of photographs from that day. So even though, I mean, obviously, the uh, the strike was defeated, there were. I mean, we have to focus on the positives. Gethin, was it the next year? The NUM forced through. Um, yeah, the, the next September, I guess it was. They were, I mean, at the Labour Party conference, there was as they, as they had had been for several years attempts to get a labor LGBT rights or lesbian gay rights motion through through conference um, and for the first time ever uh, a really significant blue collar union um, i.e the NUM put its backing behind that and for the first time ever it went through so uh, that was a kind of fairly major step forward I don't think it's actually what led to the legislative changes, I think that was mainly forced on the Blair government by um, European Courts of Justice. But uh, in terms of a political statements, getting it through Labour Party conference and then through Trade Union conference, I think it was really, really important. Although, the, the, I mean, there were both the Labour Party and TUC conference, and of course the TUC once it adopted that, regardless of what the legislation may or may not be in, in practice, the trade union movement immediately put it into practice. Yeah. So they started to draft uh, rules about employment. They accepted that LGBT issues were employment rights, i.e. it's wrong to Saxony just because they're LGBT. And so the unions, one by one, started to adopt these policies, uh, started to adopt officers. They saw it as very much as part of the equalities development and the more radical Labour councils around the country also started to voluntarily adopt these things as well. So before actual legislation was brought in force, the trade union movement preempted that, in a sense, by actually voluntarily introducing this stuff. Yeah, and, I mean, NUM lodges, we, I mean, quite a lot of stuff we only found out about years afterwards, so there were kind of local initiatives. So there was a particular 
England Large who started campaigning um, for National Coal Board housing to be made available to same-sex couples. Oh, you know, that kind of... They just did that off their own bat. We didn't know about it until, you know, a couple of decades after the event. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. Rodgers came on marches against Section 28. Yeah. So... And they started collecting for HIV charities yeah. yes. and, and writing to press about HIV and stuff. And that's that wonderful thing about solidarity. You know, that, I mean, the miners... You know, the miners we met in the eighties, some of the older ones, would still talk about the nineteen twenties and nineteen twenty six general strike and miners' strike, and they pointed out a pub that had been boycotted and to this day was is still boycotted because there were scabs who used to drink in there, and that kind of the trade union movement has a very long memory about who its comrades are and who's who's a foe and who's a friend. I mean, for me personally, I learned a hell of a lot during the miners' strike. I learned about how the British establishment works. I learned how the media lies about us. Uh, I learned how to identify a friend as opposed to an enemy. And I'll never forget that stuff because it's really, really powerful. And in particular, the demonisation of Arthur Scargill. Uh, was relentless, absolutely yeah. relentless. It was full of lies. The Sun had to uh, withdraw a, a, an image it once put on its front page of him looking like Hitler. Uh, it was forced to retract it by the print uh, unions. And what seems to be happening today is almost identical. Jeremy Corbyn is being demonised in just the same way. And because that's not new to me, because I learned something during the miners' strike, it means nothing to me because I can see it for what it is. Yeah, and good. I'm glad they're doing it, really, because we do represent a threat to the last forty years, the last awful forty years of global neoliberalism, where everybody's had to take pay cuts, where austerity measures, all that welfare provision that we fought for and achieved they've dismantled because they want to privatise everything and that is just I cannot tell you how angry I'm about that and how wrong it is and if we're not careful we're going to slide it to some kind of barbarity yeah basically what the neoliberals do is they've created a hateful dog-eat-dog frightened, racist, homophobic, xenophobic culture because that benefits them. What they're terrified of is the working class globally coming together because if we do, we are the many, they are the few, we'll get them. And it's quite right that they use any means necessary but we've got to be really aware of what that means, what the deep implications of that means. They will sabotage, they will lie, they will hurt, they will physically hurt, they will murder, they'll assassinate. We've seen it all around the world. Look at Chile in 1973, Margaret Thatcher's best friend. Yeah, She had no qualms about that. And that's what we're up against. Yeah, And we have to be savvy to that. doesn't mean that we all have to go, go out as like combatant military heroes. Um, one of the tropes that's been levelled against people like me now is that... Uh, I'm part of the hard left, which that's the first time I've ever been called hard in, in my entire life. And I quite like it, but it works quite well for me as a 65-year-old, as a gay man. Bring it on. <laughs> you know, but, you know, let's be prepared for it. But what we must remember, it's that comradeship, it's that solidarity. It's do about doing things collectively. 
And that's where our strength comes from. And we've got to just keep on and on and on. Look for divisions. Look at how we're being divided all the time. And of course, the left will always have divisions because we've got everything in the world to fight for. The right don't. They've only got one thing to fight for, and that's for capital, for self, for greed, for their own self-preservation. We've got every cause in the world to fight for. So inevitably, there's going to be division. But it doesn't mean it has to be complete separation. We resolve these things. We talk to each other. We have a dialogue. That's why LGBT rights now are accepted, because there was that division, and we've broken down that division. It can always be brought back again, yeah, some parts of the world are retracting. India, for example, stopped adopting LGBT rights a while back, but they've re reinstated that now. So we'll always have these little tensions, and we must never keep our eye off the ball, and we must always remember what the final prize is, which is really something that we haven't any alternative. You know, this society today isn't any worse than any other society. You look at our forebears. You look at the people that were fighting for trade union rights. You look at the, the, the you look at the chartists who were fighting for universal suffrage. You look at the suffragettes. You look at the civil rights movement in America. You look at Nelson Mandela. Yeah, we haven't got any worse struggles than anybody else has in history, and we have no right to give up on that. Yeah. Okay, you can get tired and exhausted. Fair enough take a break yeah but we have got to keep on struggling and fighting yeah for the for the future generation as well as for ourselves more more so that than ever because we've never had global warming before and that really is the most important thing for the future we need to insert a massive applause (laughs) definitely Gethin, you were saying this lgsm continues in in a sense Mm. Well, I mean, we reformed just as the film was coming out to take kind of advantage of that and to, and to use it for kind of political ends. We didn't want it just to be um, you know, entertainment. We wanted to try and make some political use of it. So we did reform for a strictly time-limited period. And one of the things that happened then was that it kind of drew in a whole load of much, much younger people who were kind of moved and inspired by the film. And they've gone on and done all sorts of things. So... Um, obviously, the the most high profile of those is lesbians, gay, sport, the migrants, um, and for me, I kind of see them very much as kind of LGSM's legacy. So that kind of building of uh, links with other communities, looking for who is oppressed, who are the people who've been vilified, who are the people who are under attack, and standing with them. And obviously, they've been going now for uh, a little over three years, and. Um, They've done some amazing things. I mean, not just fundraising like we did, but uh, all sorts of direct action. The Stansted 15 yeah. in particular, so some of the lesbians, gay support, the migrants people were involved in that, taking enormous risks with their liberty. and So they're really, really inspiring. You know, I think they put us in the shade <laughs> in terms of what they did. Yeah, yeah, what yeah, they're doing. yeah absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And Fred, you used there, getting it's quite, quite important because you talked about looking for other groups and, and standing by them. I had one interview with a kind of gay media company who the guy said to me, so LGSM, what was that about? Altruism? And I went, no, 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 it's not about altruism because altruism is like charity. It's about those who have deciding to give to those who haven't. 
that's not what we were collecting money for for the miners we were doing it because we were standing alongside them an attack on them was an attack on us it's the same thing that's solidarity solidarity isn't charity yeah it's we're all part of the working class and we have to look after each other that's how it works it's really really simple yeah charity clement Tapley quite rightly said is a cold heartless thing better a man pays taxes than donate to a charity and that's absolutely right well they say you shouldn't ever meet your heroes but i disagree because <laughs> yeah. uh, it's been a real privilege to, to talk to you both we have a little tradition on our podcast that you know at the end we ask the guests to give like a shout out to anyone or, or just so if you guys want to just say hello or whatever to, to anyone or, or hello or, die donovan thanks for all that you've done and all our comrades in south wales yeah absolutely i mean well it's now 33 years or so since we we met all those kind of amazing people in Neath the lessons, Swansea Valley, and we've kept in touch with so many people. I mean, it's kind of something that's really impacted on our lives for for the better, um, and it's really great to have had to, to have those friendships and to have that continuing connection. Yeah. I think we're all going down on the fourth of May. Yes, yeah. There's a plaque unveiling. Ah, fantastic. Uh, a, a plaque was unveiled in Paris on World AIDS Day last year, first of December. Uh, in a local park in Paris to the memory of Mark Ashton, which is astonishing, really, that the French, the Parisians, should should do that. And they've actually donated uh, uh, identical copies to us. So we're going to take that down to South Wales with us. And in South Wales, they've also, they're making a plaque on slate, of course, uh, to the memory of Hefina Hedden. And so those two plaques are going to be put side by side onto the walls of Yonkloin, as well Incredible. on the fourth of May. So come along if you're around. Well, yeah, we've been we've been sort of arguing on the Twitter podcast for ages that there needs to be some form of. Let's see if we can beat the twenty three pints. Two, I'd be struggling. Yeah, but um, yeah, we've said, said for a while there needs to be some form of monument to you guys to to Mark Ashton and to the maybe maybe the the march at Pride or or, or something because as I said, you are you know heroes to you know hundreds of thousands of people. If you get a chance, just down the road, there's Gaze the Word, and there is a, a plaque for Mark. Okay, we'll on go the to that. Of Gaze the Word. But you know, the real heroes were who? The miners. The miners. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, I mean, the people who were out on strike for 12 months. Of course, yeah. it's kind of Being starved back to yeah. work. Yeah. And facing violence on picket lines yeah. and losing their houses, relationships breaking up. Yeah. So we'd like to dedicate this podcast to. Well, the miners, and also to the memory of Mark Ashton. So it's been a very emotional part. Yeah. <laughs> the incredibly enjoyable, also very hard. But um, I've learned so much, and just yeah, thanks so much for having, mm. for Thank having you. us. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. I'm gonna invite somebody onto the stage now who wants to talk to you, and I want you to listen to him. He's a striking miner, and he has something he wants to say to you. I've had a lot of new experiences during the strike. Speed in public, standing on a picket line, and now I'm in a, a gay bar. Well, if you don't like it, you can go home. <laughs> As a matter of fact, I do like it. <laughs> Beer's a bit expensive, mine. <laughs> but really, there's only one difference between this and a bar in South Wales. The women. They're a lot more feminine than you. 
what I'd really like to say is thank you. If you've supported LGSM, then thank you. Because what you've given us is more than money, it's friendship. When you're in a battle against an enemy so much bigger, so much stronger than you, but to find out you had a friend you never knew existed, well, that's the best feeling in the world. So thank you. <laughs>